Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. For those of you coming back, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, it's great to have you. Our guest today is physician coach and author, Dr. Gail Gazelle. More on Gail in a moment, but first, let me tell you about the last 10 times I went to the doctor. You know, overall, it was fine, but the decision-making that went into my healthcare was usually guided by a guideline. You know, you guys know guidelines. It's one size fits all, kind of the stamp of approval for doing this or that. It's how a lot of medicine works, but none of us are one size fits all. We are different physically, genetically with our lifestyles. That's why I'm so stoked to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Wild Health. Wild Health provides personalized medicine, taking into account your DNA, biometrics, your microbiome, got to feed the biome, keep it healthy, lifestyle factors to come up with your ideal diet, supplements, lifestyle to optimize health and maximize health span. I've actually gone through their program, the blood test, the DNA, lifestyle analysis, all that. I'll tell you about what happened in our next episode. And for those of you really interested in this stuff, they also have a fellowship program to teach physicians, providers, health coaches how to practice what's kind of a new paradigm of medicine. Check it out at wildhealth.com and use the code STIMULUS for 10% off any Wild Health care plan. All right. Our guest today, Dr. Gail Gazelle, she is one of the pioneers in physician coaching. She's got a coaching practice focusing on leadership development, mindfulness, emotional intelligence, resilience, moving from burnout to balance. We're going to get into all that stuff today. She's also the author of Everyday Resilience, a practical guide to build inner strength and weather life's challenges. We'll put a link to that book as well as a free chapter in the show notes. We'll also put in how to contact Gail, put it in our website, but In this interview, we talk about mindfulness several times, and we're definitely going to cover mindfulness in detail in future episodes, exactly how to practice it, some of the nuance of it. And I know that many of you are already well-versed in this or have at least tried it, but for the sake of clarity and to bring everybody onto the same page, mindfulness is a practice of being aware what's going on with your mind and grounding yourself to the present moment. For example, very simple practice of it. You sit down, close your eyes, focus on your breath. What's it feel like to come in and out? That's really a ground to the present moment. Doesn't have to be your breath, but breath is always there. So easy meditation object. And as you're focusing on your breath, you'll become distracted. No matter who you are, how advanced a meditator, how mindful of a person you are, thoughts will emerge because that's how the mind works. Mind is a constant card flip of ideas. But because you're doing this practice of focusing on your breath, grounding yourself in the present moment, you realize that your mind is elsewhere. It's thinking about something else. So you come back to the breath. And this pattern happens again and again. Your mind wanders. You have awareness of it. You are mindful of it. And then you come back to what's happening in the present moment, your breath. There's a lot that comes out of this practice, a lot of benefits, but one of them is that you are attuned to what's happening in your mind. Much more to discuss on that topic, but that's the basic idea. 
So here we go, gonna get deep into the mind of the clinician with physician coach, Gail Gazelle. You do all this stuff with different docs and you've got a very unique approach that we'll get into. Like why, why do you do this? What was the spark that lit this? I was going along in my career, gung-ho, big academic career, good clinical career, had a son along the way. And I was getting so burnt out myself. I was getting really crispy. I was getting kind of this sense of a loss of purpose, guilt. You know, when I was home with my son, why wasn't I reading journals and going back to my patient charts when I was at work? What was wrong with me? I was a bad mom. Why wasn't I home with him? And it was really wearing me down. I actually got coached. I kind of stumbled into coaching. And I'd had therapy before for complicated family issues. Therapy was great. But there were a lot of things that I just wasn't able to move forward on. And I'll tell you, I got coached. And it was as if I was able to leapfrog forward. It felt like a magic wand, frankly. (laughs) I got my energy back. I got reconnected to my sense of purpose. I could see my strengths a little bit more clearly. And I just decided I want to do this to help other physicians. It was, you know, about 10 years ago, we were just beginning to really understand the impact and the intensity and the prevalence of physician burnout. And I just thought, I want to help other physicians do this, regain their sense of purpose, their sense of commitment and drive, their energy. I wanted to help transform them in the way that I had found coaching transformational for myself. What did burnout look like for you? You know, that sense of like the well is dry and you're just dragging yourself from one thing to the next, from one patient to the next, one interaction from the next. And even in your home life, you're dragging yourself. You're not fully present anywhere. So there was that sense of exhaustion. There was that withdrawal from work, that lack of engagement on my part that it just seemed kind of a little bit like, why bother? What's the point? I didn't connect at all to what I was accomplishing. I felt like I wasn't accomplishing anything. And it's a terrible state. Sometimes people call burnout the erosion of the soul. And I think for physicians struggling with burnout, they can relate to that. It's almost um, it's almost mind-numbing. Numbing. You know, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm so depleted. I'm so disconnected. I, I used to care so much, and now I don't. And, and, and what that feels like on a soul level, because we are here to help other people. That's why we go into the practice of medicine. And it leaves us feeling not just disconnected, but really lost in a sense, lost, unsure what to do next. What you're describing, I personally experienced several times in my career. And that was just like run-of-the-mill medicine. But now there's COVID overlying everything else. Is there a different flavor of the burnout or the stress or the conversations that you have with your clients, say now compared to a year ago? It's a really good question. And I I can imagine your listeners are sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, there sure is. Because <laughs> we were pushed to the max pre-COVID, right? You know, caseloads, the EMR, the push to be more and more productive, see more patients in less time, read more x-rays, all of that. And then COVID came along and 
all of this uncertainty, all of this change, all of the fears that, of course, physicians have about themselves, about their loved ones, it's added this other layer on top of things. And sure, for some physicians, it's like, yes, I was waiting for COVID. I am in my element. I'm in my purpose. Let me add it. There's a minority of physicians that I think are feeling that excited about really doing the work. But for the majority of physicians, I don't think that's the case. And I think that COVID has brought a couple of things to the fore. I had the privilege of running some peer support groups for physicians in New York City in a large physician group. And the intensity of the guilt I'm not an emergency doc. I'm not an ICU doc. I'm not doing the real thing. I heard that from a radiologist. I heard it from a pediatrician. The sense of, you know, they're all calling me a hero at seven o'clock. All the horns are honking and everybody's, you know, excited and they're screaming, the heroes, we're so proud of you. And yet I don't feel like a hero. I couldn't save that patient who got intubated in my ED. Heroes save everybody. And so this disconnect, this um, sort of more of a focus on what we're not able to do than what we are, which is a real theme in burnout. It's where we can get caught very easily. We lose sight of our accomplishments. And I was hearing a lot of that, not just from docs in New York, but from physician clients all over the country, this almost a, a heightened sense of inadequacy. I'm an imposter because I'm not working on the front lines. And we really need to help our colleagues. You know, everybody's working hard in this pandemic. Everybody's working hard in different ways. A radiologist that I coached who said to me, you know, I'm not seeing patients, but I am seeing the chest x-rays every single day of patients intubated. And I got to tell you, it's brutal seeing that. So everybody's doing their part. I don't think there's any question about that, but we can get into that pattern of doubting ourselves and when we're in burnout, we just can't see the good that we're doing. I want to touch on something that you said was that term hero, which mm. which I think that society glommed onto. And most docs that I spoke with found that to be a very unhelpful term because number one, it's kind of like, like what, what am I living up to? And number two, it's like, you know, we're professionals heroism has nothing to do with this. We're getting the job done. And this is like what we do all the time. This disconnect of, you know, all of these memes that you see of doctors and nurses, illustrations wearing Superman and mm -hmm. Superwoman outfits and people saying, yeah, that, that just makes me feel weird. Can we stop saying this? When you dig below the surface, it turns out that soldiers, you know, there's a, a guy, um, Dakota Meyer, who won the Medal of Honor for saving quite a few of his fellow soldiers in, I think it was in one of the Iraqi conflagrations. And he then left service, became a construction worker, probably had a lot of PTSD from the war. And he said when he got presented with the Medal of Honor, he felt a sense of shame. He felt like, I'm not a real hero. Real heroes would have gone back. Real heroes would have saved everybody. So it's a funny term, isn't it? You know, it carries sort of some weight with it that what I think is really important for us as physicians is to focus on the good that we're doing. Whatever terms people want to give us, whatever accolades, that's up to them. We've got to stay grounded in, yeah, I took care of, you know, Mrs. Jones and Mr. So-and-so, and I was really able to help them. And that's what makes me feel good about myself. That's what sustains me as a physician. 
it's interesting you mentioned previously people saying like I'm not in the emergency department, I'm not in the ICU, you know, I'm in the clinic or I'm I'm XYZ, but the chain of care without the radiologist, without the internist, without the so and so subspecialist, the emergency department cannot do much because mm-hmm. that that chain of care doesn't exist, you know, with, without a radiologist helping you read CT scans, in many ways your department is paralyzed. And I think when you, we start micro dissecting the value of what we do and not seeing it from the 30,000 foot view. It's like, oh, what I do is so effect and, and ineffectual. But really the network of the care providers is so interdependent that, yeah, I mean, it, it almost sounds trite to say, but it truly is a team where everybody's playing a part, but it can be hard to feel that. Definitely. And are we really trained in the art of teamwork? I think many physicians would say probably not. We're trained to be the captain of the team, Johnny on the spot, have the answer, be in control, right? Don't just stand there, do something. And yet what the COVID pandemic really has shown a light on, many things, but the one that comes to mind for me is what do we do when we can't control? What do we do when we don't have an answer? How do we manage that? We who have learned that we're the ones who are supposed to know what to do next. And I've seen that have a very erosive effect on physicians during the pandemic, a questioning, who am I if I don't have an answer? Who am I if I can't control the outcome here because we don't know what the right treatment is? We, we don't have that science yet. What I hear you talking about is how to kind of step out of these stories, <laughs> the story of right, who we're supposed right. to be as a doctor, what it means to be successful as a physician, and really own our own strengths day in, day out. What is the good that I'm doing today? Even if I can't cure this disease, even if I've got all my PPE on, did I care? Did I make an effort? Did I show up and do my best? Because that's what can really fuel us as opposed to focusing on the things that we cannot do, which are many in the modern healthcare system, even independent and before COVID. Yeah. You know, I heard heard an interesting question and it kind of relates to all this. It was addressed to a physician who was being interviewed on CNN and the newscaster said, you know, I hear a lot of doctors might leave medicine when this is all over. And that seems like a terrible waste for them, you know, with all their training, it seems like a waste for society. And speaking to my colleagues, when this first started, most were saying, as you said, this is what we trained for. It's go time. It is dangerous. There's fear, but it's so exciting. You know, it's the it's the eleventh hour, and and we got this. And truly, mm-hmm. that was the case. It's like this is what you know what my specialty, emergency medicine, was built for. Was built for mass casualty. Was built for pandemic. Was built for critical care, where all that stuff came together. But now the newness has worn off a bit, and I hear a lot of this is exhausting. This is frustrating. Mm-hmm. There's so many reasons for that frustration to happen when it's coming from a healthcare worker. Like that's a long preamble to this question, but <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think drives the undercurrent voice of, or at least that news anchor asking, you know, many doctors are going to be out of here, and you know, since like you were addressing a large audience of them, how would you frame the current situation? I mean, you kind of have like, what are the goods you doing, but. How would you frame the current situation and maybe help work through this? At the beginning of the pandemic, concerns were focused on PPE and protection. And 
I, and this is probably true for you, Rob, too, heard a lot of docs saying, you know, they haven't given us sufficient PPE and they're expecting us to get in there and deal with all these difficulties. And I keep telling them what I need and they're just not getting it for me. People felt screwed over, really. Yeah, yeah. Screwed over, a sense of frustration, a sense of not being seen. These administrators just want me to get in there and do this, but I don't have what I need. And I, you know, I got to be safe. Not so much for myself, but so that I don't bring this home to my family, to my kids, to my loved ones. So I think that's a piece of this, this sense of, um, are we in this together? Or are you just asking us docs to go out there and kind of take the hit in a sense? You know, that's, that would be an understatement. But I think there was a little bit of that early on. Let's face it, now there are a lot of docs who are facing unemployment who are facing prolonged furloughs, who are being asked to take pay cuts. Um, you know, I was coaching a leader in the Midwest, and their health system is laying off 7,000 people, which did, was not that 7,000 physicians, but it included physicians. So there's a sense of, okay, so first we were heroes, and now you're going to just kind of cut us loose. It's been really hard for physicians, I think, to weather all of this, in addition to the uncertainty, in addition to this thing that we're taught that we're the ones in control and have an answer, and we don't have answers here. We're not in control of the fate of a lot of patients in the pandemic. So I think the cost of this is really mighty. Uh, I see this getting played out with the physicians that I work with, and a lot of insecurity, uncertainty about what the future has to hold. So- Someone comes to you, let's say it's a client, someone you've got an established relationship. They're like, man, I, I am feeling ungrounded, like a leaf in the wind with all this. And I'm tired and I'm frustrated. This is this whole new level of stress. I mean, where do, where do I even begin to start processing? It's so interesting in all the hours that we spend in our training do we even get one hour about how to manage ourselves and how to manage uncertainty and how to weather the kind of difficulties that our careers present? I find it's a rare physician who got any training in how to manage themselves, how to manage uncertainty, how to manage what you do when there's a lot that you can't control. So, one of the things I do with clients, it, it may sound like a silly question, but First, validating how difficult things are. we got to be able to hear and be heard and be seen for the reality of our experience. So that's kind of the baseline of what I can do as a coach. But the question that comes to mind is, so client, what parts of this can you control? And the client kind of pauses and realizes all of a sudden how much energy they have expended railing against things over which they have no control i.e. the big administrative layer <laughs> that we have in healthcare now of non-clinical administrators who, you know, do a lot and control a lot in the lives of uh, physicians. And I see physicians just expending so much energy. This cannot be. This has to stop. How can they be treating me this way? They don't respect how hard I'm working. And so I encourage the physicians that I coach to just ponder the question, what's under your control here? How can I help you really mobilize and harness your energy toward the things that you can't control and minimize the dissipation of energy in the things that you can't? It may sound superficial, but it can actually help us decrease this loss of energy. We only have so much. 
And there's so many demands on us, even pre-COVID, so many demands. So we part of the equation for minimizing burnout and building resilience is getting a little more balance there, not losing your precious energy in places where you can't afford to do so. So that's one piece of it. Another piece is how do we fill our tank? As physicians, we're very good at putting ourselves last, right? We're there to take care of everybody else. We are the caregivers. We don't learn what it is that we need to sustain ourselves. And I have seen countless physicians running on empty, literally empty, not eating breakfast, but figuratively empty as well, not doing anything to sustain themselves. And often physicians come back with, well, I don't have time, Gail. You know, I was a tennis player in college. I rode crew. You know, I was an artist, a dancer. I cooked. Whatever it is that was so fulfilling to them. And they don't have the time that they used to have. Now they have family responsibilities. Now they have the burdens of their career. And yet, What I want to encourage listeners to think about is what I call a daily dose of goodness. What's one small thing you can do that nourishes you? One small thing that is just for you, that's not for your family and that isn't for your career, but what's one small bit of sustenance you can give yourself that might be a cup of tea. It might be meditating. It might be listening to important music. It might be playing a musical instrument even for five minutes. We're so used to being high performers and you know, being the Olympic level athlete. What's one small thing you can do to fuel yourself, to give yourself that daily dose of goodness? Because You can't run this marathon if you don't fill the tank. How do you coach people to make sure that that daily dose of goodness is protected? Do do you have them link it to something else so that it becomes a defined habit? Do you have them block it out in the calendar? All of those things are important. Uh, We do not do things unless they're part of our routine, right? We all learned that in our training, the routine of, you know, doing a physical exam and doing it in exactly the same way every time so that it becomes ingrained and you can do it in your sleep. So it has to become part of the routine, definitely. But I think in addition to that, one of the angles that I take on coaching is the human element of what's in it for me. So let's say you come to me, Rob, and you're feeling really depleted, as you've told me, it happened a number of times in your career. And I want to help you see what's in it for you to do some small act of self-care, to give yourself this daily dose of goodness. So the coaching questions I might ask you are, you know, tell me about what's important to you about whatever the life passion is. And what, what life passions do you have, Rob? I would say spending time with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, hanging out individually with my kids, watching movies and talking with my wife, riding my bike, reading a book, uh-huh. meditating. Okay, this is a pretty good list you've got here. I'm just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning. You said relationships, time with yes. my family, my wife, my kids, the people who are most deeply important to me. So if you came to me depleted and burnt out and telling me, Gail, I don't have a minute in the day to spend time with my kids. And even when I'm with them, my mind is back at work thinking about that difficult case and what was the outcome and did I, did I do the right thing? So I might come back with, yeah, I, I get it. The time constraints are mighty. Let's just imagine for a minute, though, Rob, that you did spend more quality time with your family, even if you couldn't dramatically increase the quantity. What would be in it for you? What would be better about your life if you could do that? 
I think I would feel more grounded to the important thing in life rather mm -hmm. than, and I guess, um, yeah, I think I would feel more grounded to my actual life, you know, like just like a sense of stability and connection. And how would that affect your energy level? I think that it would be actually calming so that the energy level, if I was burnt and stressed, it would go from frenetic to like centered and more present if I was giving dedicated and focused time to my family. You'd feel more of a sense of pride in yourself, not just as a physician, but as a father and a spouse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would be that, you know, I felt like I was doing the job as I wanted it to be done. I'm not that, you know, it's a job to, to, to be, uh -huh. be in the family, but I was doing this thing in the way that I found valuable rather than in a way that was cursory. Yeah, I can hear a deeper sense of fulfillment in your roles, in who you are and the fullness of your life. That's fair to say. Let's just keep playing here with the coaching that um, imagine, you know, a whole week in your life, you know, the clinical demands, you know, when you're working in the ED, but just imagine that you've got that quality, like you said, grounded and calm with your family. Just imagine walking through your life. Just think about what would you get in that equation that you're not getting now? I think it would be feeding the soul with something that felt like it was right. Wow. Feeding you deep in your soul. Yeah. Because when I think about those situations of, okay, for example, if I am podcasting, and I'm, I'm working on something in here and one of my family members comes into the room and they want my attention. If I'm like, oh, I, I'm working on this other thing that by default, if I'm working on it rather than talking to you, is more important than talking to you. I generally feel bad after that. But if I pause and say, okay, I can come back to this. And then it's like, okay, you're, you're the primary mission of my life. Let me engage with you. Then that feels... It feels like a different state of being. I could kind of hear an uptick in your voice, that calm, grounded, more positive place, as you said, nourishing your soul. So if I were coaching you, I'd spend a little bit more of our session in helping you get this dose of this better state, because it's a much more creative and resourceful place. So it's not just the dose of it, but then we'd move into, so from this state, Rob, Let's think about how you can do this a little bit more. Let's brainstorm a little bit about how we can apply this different state that you've, you're acknowledging to the problem at hand. So it's not just this out there thing of let's go on a fantasy journey. <laughs> We're going on that journey, that envisioning journey of a better future, kind of like um, Stephen Covey talks about, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people start with the end in mind. You got to know what it is that you want to begin to get to it. You can't, if you don't have it in mind, you know, like let's say with a patient that we're treating, if we don't have in mind the cure, <laughs> we're never going to help that patient get there, right? Kind of provides a roadmap for us. So, I'd help you spend a little bit more time in this desired state. And from that state, think a little bit about action steps, guidance to your present day self, so to speak, that you could then draw upon with this resource of seeing the end, the desired, the thing that you want so much, touching it. It's powerful motivation. 
I want to get back to something you were mentioning, like the the first thing, which was you know looking at what you can control. And I mean, Gail Gazelle, you are a modern day Stoic philosopher. We had an episode a few episodes ago on Stoicism and talking about the dichotomy of control, essentially the foundation of an entire philosophical movement that also founds cognitive behavioral therapy. And it seems like it is such a small thing. And it's like, oh, we'll think about the things you can control. That is such a grounding exercise. What can I control of this? I can control my values. I can control my judgment. I can control if I am applying wisdom to this. I can't control if somebody is acting like a complete bovine fool. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, even, even though that person's actions might have direct effect on me mm-hmm. and really freaking irritate me. And I might have partial control over those things, but I don't have control over what they are like and the decisions that they make. It's hard. It's hard medicine to swallow. you know. And, and I'd say that it's intermittently effective because sometimes that you know thinking about what you can actually control gets overwhelmed by the wave of people throwing damaging things at you. But mm-hmm. I think if you keep chipping away at it, it becomes part of the way that you think about things and, and almost like a like a shield when shit gets thrown, gets thrown at just like, well, yeah, you know what? You can throw the shit and I can move. That's my option. Sometimes people hear this and they think, oh, they're just asking me to passively endure all the miseries in life. So for burned out doctors, for example, so I, what should, I should just sit down and accept these miserable EMRs. I should just, you know, accept this layer of administrators and the lack of control. No, it's really more kind of accepting what is, accepting, yeah, we do have this burdensome layer of administrators, and I'm not trying to knock them, but it's a a complaint that so many physicians have that I'm, I'm mentioning it. We need to see things for what they are so that we can best assert ourselves in our environment. So somebody's slinging mud at you, so to speak, as you said, you know, no, you're not just going to take it, but you could work with your own emotions about it. You could realize maybe it's not personal to me. Maybe they're just somebody who tends to sling barbs and mud. So that could help down, kind of downgrade the emotional valence, the anger that I have, the frustration, the sense of hurt, the sense of not being respected. I could work with that a little bit with a mindful approach, kind of get to know it, turn it down a little bit, and actually be better situated to work with them, to help them do something differently, or as you said, to leave. (laughs) <laughs> to withdraw from the situation. But there's a wisdom that we can gain when we can look at things with that kind of clarity. And one of those lenses is that lens of, wow, what is beyond my control here? You know, just as an example, I was coaching somebody actually this morning who was really struggling with their department chair. A lot of gripes about that department chair. They're, you know, a weak leader, they're not reining people in, they're misguiding use of resources. And you know what, they just have to go. This is what the physician client was saying to me, you know, they they just really, this just isn't going to work. Either they need to leave or I need to leave. 
And there was so much anger, so much frustration. I just think about it as dissipating energy, like you're fritting away energy on all that anger. Not that anger isn't a valid emotion, but to work with yourself to really think about, wow, well, how can I help this leader do better? What can I do to affect more change here? It's, it's a type of taking responsibility that somehow in our training, it gets a little messy. We don't quite learn to really look at what we can solve and what we can't solve and kind of how to apply our energies. I, I don't know what you think about that, Rob, but I find myself thinking about that a lot. We learn that we're the ones in control and it kind of sets us up for a problem around this, it sets us up. We think we can control everything. And then we get really frustrated and annoyed when we can't, because of course, there are going to be things that are beyond our control. So what I'm always doing as a physician coach is just try to help clients get that clarity, really have a very clear lens about where they can mobilize and where they can be most effective. Poor leadership in, mm -hmm. in these times. And I am hearing that from around the country. Actually, I want to tell the story about that in a, in a moment and see what your thoughts are. But first you're talking about, okay, so here's a leader who's making decisions that might not be great. Maybe they don't take input so well. You know, maybe there's all, all of these issues. And I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say when there's a poor leader and you know what, I mean, you can recognize poor leadership fairly easily that, okay, how can I help them be a better leader? Rather, it's like, Oh my God, do they suck? <laughs> right, yeah. Do they suck? And you see that leader because they have an effect on you as your opponent and you feel like a victim of that. And essentially it's just frustration and that every decision they make is framed in that. And it's looking through those lenses of, mm -hmm. oh my God, they just, they are the worst. And I don't know if I've ever, even in my own mind, thought about that, you know, when there's a leader who is less than I think a leader should be. It's like, okay, how can I make them awesome? What can I do? And either directly to them or even indirectly, because in your, in your own mind, you're thinking, all right, I'm going to be the pillars to hold this thing up that they're not doing the full job because we're all in this together, man. That actually, even just saying it, I feel so good rather than when you're describing the bad, when you're describing that bad leader of the section or department, I was like, oh God, that guy, that guy pissing me <laughs> off right now. But then when you said, okay, what can you do to make them better? That's as win-win as it gets. It gives you a little more skin in the game that you can be an active participant. I think so often it's just easy for us to check out. Yeah, this leader's terrible. They're making my life miserable. So I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to be less engaged. Then we just don't feel good about ourselves. We leave and we feel even more downtrodden and we don't feel that sense of pride. Like, wow, I did my best. This was a tough circumstance. This guy, this woman is hard to work with, but I'm doing what I can to kind of help the rest of the people to take good care of patients, to do the organizational mission. You know, I'm doing my part. And that's what really drives us. That's what motivates us as physicians in particular. That's what fuels us is doing good, small and large, clinical and non-clinical. That's who we are. So a lot of coaching is just like you did right there, how to help you see it a little more clearly, how to help you reframe it from, ah, oh, this miserable boss, ugh, to, wow, okay, yeah, this person has challenges. They probably didn't learn how to be a good boss. A lot of people 
get into leadership positions in medicine because of some article they wrote, right? We've all seen that drill, not because they're good at managing departments <laughs> or people. That's so right. what can I do? What can I do for, you know, quote unquote, the greater good? That's what motivates us. And that's what you really talked about just now, this deep sense of empowerment. You know, those kind of cartoons where you've got the angel and the devil on the shoulder. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's just a cartoon. Okay. All right. Well, so there's no angel, but you are on this doc's shoulder. He is at a meeting and I'm going to tell you at the, he he actually got fired for this. So, um, and this was right when COVID was ascendant in the spring and there was a meeting with hospital administrators and they said, okay, patient volumes are down. We're going to need you guys to all take 30% pay cuts right now. Everybody was getting that. And he said, okay, we get it. What pay cuts are the administrators taking? <laughs> and the next day he was on his ass. And it's mm-hmm. like, what the mm-hmm. hell? So he's in that situation and you're on his shoulder and you could whisper anything in his ear. How would you advise him? I would whisper in his ear. What's your goal? What is it that you want to achieve here? Because his emotional temperature got the best of him. It's an important question. What pay cuts were the administrators taking? But if if he'd had his eyes on the prize, what's my goal here? Well, my goal, my family's really happy in this community. I don't know if I'm going to get a position somewhere else. I want to stay put. If that was his goal, he could have asked it in a different way, right? He could have said, wow, this is, you know, this is going to be really tough for me and for my peers and for my family. I'm just curious, how can we work together to meet the deficit that the hospital is facing? How can we think more broadly about how to manage this conundrum that we're in as a, as a hospital community? He could have asked it in a different way that could have achieved the same goal, could have gotten people thinking, but could have kept him in his goals of wanting to stay in that position. Yeah, I think that the intent was probably uh, how to give the biggest F you to the administrator. Yeah, sure. Normal emotional response. We've all been there, Rob. Everybody can relate to that. But we got to learn how to modulate ourselves. We're so good at doing that with patients. Every physician who has ever come to me for coaching, and I've coached over 500 physicians in the last decade, one-on-one, and many more in groups, they all say to me, you know, I don't have any problem with patient scale. Really, that's what they all say. I'm that's the best. That's the best part of the job. That's, that's it, the best yeah. part of the job. Even when it's horrible, it's still a good part of the job. It is. And we learn how to control our emotions with patients. Occasionally, we lose it. Some of those docs <laughs> come to me as well. They've gone to their state physician health. You know, they've been sent, so to speak, for coaching. But for most of the physicians who come to me, they have mastered that skill. Same emotions, but they know how to master them so that they don't get the best of them. And so a lot of what I'm helping my clients do is develop that same emotional intelligence, that ability to be aware of our emotional temperature, and then regulate it. The very key human attributes that we don't always learn how to do outside of the exam room or the OR, and yet we can. Physicians are very quick learners, and the wonderful thing about coaching is we're turning the lens of learning inward. So many times physicians, maybe you've heard this, Rob, have a sentiment that they're not being respected. Nobody sees how hard I'm working. I'm just a widget. That's perfect because he he was up to date on all the COVID literature and you know and what was happening internet. Not that there was a lot of literature then, but you know what was happening internationally and it was trying to bring it to the administration. And they're like, "Don't bring this to us. We know what we're doing." And he wasn't being heard. Wasn't being heard. Wasn't being heard. And mm-hmm. that administrator thing was his snapping point. 
And sometimes it's just an administrator doing their job. Sometimes it is disrespect, but I find that more often it's just they're doing their job, but it takes us to that place. So this is the second key question that I would ask. What are you taking personally here that actually isn't personal to you? Mm. It's another Mm -hmm. game changer question because we all walk around taking everything personally. Our spouse, you know, leaves the dirty dishes in the sink and we think, don't they care about me? Don't they respect how hard I'm working? They expect me to clean up all their messes. Well, maybe they're just a slop and they left the dishes in the dishwasher or our teenager, you know, tells us we're the worst parent on the face of the earth. Every (laughs) every parent has heard that one and we start taking it really personally. What do you mean? I've taken such good care of you. I give you this, I give you that, right? But really it's just the teenager frankly being developmentally appropriate that's oh, what teenagers I, do i've got i've got i gotta tell you my my response to that uh, because I, I i didn't realize it wasn't just us here so when i have heard that my response has become wait did you say i'm the i am the worst parent in the world <laughs> and of course in the heat of anger see yes you are the worst wow i've never been number one at anything in the world and it's a great, yeah. it's a great Excellent. honor. <laughs> Excellent. You break the spell. You break the charge. You know, and rather than it becoming a shooting match and, you know, the escalation, you just kind of, you, you take the charge out of it and you move along and then you're okay with your teen. It's kind of money in the bank for that relationship, isn't it? And that's, it's a skill. It sort of gets the, uh, that was a dad joke eye roll, but it diffuses <laughs> the situation. You probably felt pretty good about yourself in that moment, I'm imagining, as opposed to if you'd said, how dare you, you know, you don't see how hard I work and give you this and give you that, right? Yeah. Well, you know, my first thought was, well, boy, maybe you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they'd be right about a lot of parents, then, wouldn't they? (laughs) I want to switch gears to something that has, I think, been interwoven into what you're you're saying, which is this kind of look inward and... A lot of medicine, I think, as, as you were alluding to earlier in our conversation, sets you up to live in a fixed mindset where I know this, I got this, I in fact am the source of all knowledge, I am the professor of all things in general, and mm-hmm. inhibits you from a growth mindset of there's always stuff to learn and I, and I don't know it all, but I feel like it's a natural state and even celebrated. And I don't know that it's actually called the fixed mindset, but just to to be that way, at least as far as your medical training goes. And do you find that it's kind of a leading question, I guess, but do you find that that's the case? And if it is the case, you know, how do you get past that barrier? We do a lot of either or thinking. We're trained to say it is this right this this patient comes in with x ache and pain and we ask the right questions we get the right diagnostic tests it is this as opposed to well i think it's this but it could be that you know the differential diagnosis and that same either or thinking really trips us up in terms of burnout so many times physicians call me and they say something like my job is just miserable gail nothing is going well and i there's no satisfaction for me nothing nothing gail nothing is good about what i'm doing and i'm very empathetic what a painful place to be and we've seen colleagues in that place of burnout but then i shift to so just tell me one thing that went well in the last week 
nothing's going well. The practice of medicine is miserable. I wouldn't recommend it to my worst enemy. <laughs> and, and just a second. I, I want you to scroll back through the last week. And I know it can be a bit of a blur, but I, I want you to tell me about one positive patient interaction. And within a few minutes, they're telling me not just about one, but about three or four. But this either or thinking, it's either good or it's bad. It's miserable or it's fine. <laughs> so much of life is both and. And it's a place that we can all go to, this either or. And again, I, I, I think it's bolstered in our training, unfortunately, and it leaves us very vulnerable to burnout, takes us away from our natural resilience of being able to ride the waves of, you know, the vicissitudes of our life, of our relationships, of our careers that we need to be able to ride in, a, in order to get through a career in medicine, a very demanding career. So, I don't know if that's exactly what you were getting at, but that's where I go with your question. How do we expand into a true both and mindset? Yes. How do we do it? How do we, how do we, get, how do we get there? How do we do it? Well, we challenge our own thinking. We challenge our own beliefs that it can be very so-called black and white. We have to challenge ourselves. Is this true? Is this true or is life much more messy than that? Are, are my experiences more messy than that? We gotta, we all have filters and that's a, at the kind of the hallmark of something you mentioned early, co earlier, cognitive behavioral therapy, these filters that we have where we magnify some things, we minimize other things, we tune out information and it doesn't always serve us that well. So we can apply our cognition, our very well-developed cognition to question our own thoughts and our own assumptions. And that can really take us into the light of both and thinking in a very powerful way. And it, it's really sustaining for us. It helps us see the mixture of what we're dealing with, that it's never good or bad. It's always a mixture of both. And then that also helps us connect more with the strengths, with the good things that are happening, which then continues to create those upward spirals of growth and, and meaning and purpose. We were talking before about mindfulness that would be, you know, more in a quiet place or, you know, like a, a chill reflective practice. Are there exercises or are there tools that you have for people to apply that to the heat of the moment to in the emergency department, in the clinic, to the operating room, to the ICU, or when there's intensity rather than, oh, okay, I've got my set, I've got my setting, I've got my chill, I'm all good, this is my time. Okay, mindfulness, I got you, baby. Versus, <laughs> versus this day is overwhelming me, I'm spinning my wheels, need a little shot of mindfulness here. The most important one is what's called the purposeful pause. There's a protocol that I teach all of my coaching clients, and I've personally found it enormously helpful, and I've seen it be a game changer for them. And it's just called STOP, S-T-O-P. So you're in the heat of the moment. Things aren't looking good. You're going down the rabbit hole. Stop. A little time out, even a second. That's the S. T. Take three slow, deep breaths. O observe, kind of step out of yourself, almost as if you're observing yourself from the outside in. What's going on here? How does this look? Observe yourself in particular through the lens of a compassionate observer, somebody who can see how hard you're working. And once you've done that, you go to the P, plan. 
Another part of the P is praise yourself. At a minimum, say, wow, this is hard. What I'm going through is difficult, but I'm doing the best I can. So praise and plan. S-T-O-P. We like protocols as physicians. We're used to them. (laughs) We like acronyms. So this is a nice, easy word. Stop. I would encourage all of your listeners to try it out because it can really help to defuse things. How do you have them engage with that? Do you say, oh, you, you know, like there's mindfulness apps that prompt you during the day. How do you feel? Or is it, you know, whenever you feel spun up, do this or like every hour on the hour? What, or is it just whatever works for you? It's not a one size fits all. For a lot of the physician leaders that I coach, I encourage them to do it at the beginning of a meeting. You know, there's some compliance metric, let's say, that they have to roll out that they know people are going to be unhappy about. (laughs) You know, we got plenty of those. So to do that, to help them be balanced and centered when they go into giving that, you know, delivering that difficult news. For an ED doc, there's a, a fellow that I was coaching not that long ago who just had so much dread regarding his shift, so much anxiety. I was almost paralyzed, frankly. It was so painful. So we did some work around meditation and the STOP protocol to help him deal with his dread, his pre-shift dread. You can do it at different times. I think it needs to fit the bill for whatever your specialty is, whatever your workflow. For some physicians, drive home, get into the driveway, do the STOP protocol before you actually go into the house because you're so spent by the end of your day. You just need a little bit of time to decompress bring a little bit of compassion. You've worked incredibly hard. You might not have it in you to go home to the screaming kids and the demands of of domestic duties. So to actually do that stop protocol, just to pause, just kind of take a breath, have a clean break between the demands of your day and what lies, you know, inside the doorway. You're talking about pre-shift dread. And I want to touch on that because many docs I know feel pre-shift dread. But almost universally, they say that once they get into the shift, they feel fine. And mm-hmm. they kind of logically know that once they get into that shift, like, I know, I know I'm going to be okay, but just the, the, the dread, it's ever present and lasts for decades. And I'm wondering if there is like a consistent cause of that. And is that a universal phenomenon that once, once the shift starts, like, oh yeah, oh, I actually know what I'm doing. I hear about dread from physicians, basically, no matter what specialty they're in. Wow. I hear it a lot from uh, emergency physicians, definitely. But I hear it from pediatricians. I hear it from surgeons. This anticipatory dread. It's costly having that dread. You just think about how many hours are spent when you're not at work, (laughs) that you're absorbed in that really painful, gut-wrenching sensation of dread and anticipating the worst. And that is workable. That's another mind state that we can work with. And I'm not here to ever say to a client, oh, just don't feel that dread. Everything's <laughs> going to be okay. Don't worry your pretty little head. That's not what we're talking about here. It's having the tools. Just realize, almost say to yourself, well, there goes my mind again. Going into worry and fear and dread, that's normal. That's what my mind does. But you know what? We're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We've been through a lot of difficult shifts. So not succumbing to it but actually taking the time to work with it. I worked in an emergency department for 12 years where I had dread 100, well, maybe not the first shift, but after that, for every shift after that, I had, I had dread going in. 
and mm. I had the same route and it would be like the same part of the drive. I would start to get like acid in my stomach and I would start to feel mm -hmm. palpitations. It was extremely busy, very high pressure. It was the people I worked with were wonderful. I mean, it was like they were, it was a great team. I'm, you know, still friends with many of them. And, but it was just, I knew that I was going to get crushed and funny, like nothing I could do about that. The patients were still going to come. Once I started working, I was getting crushed and it was stressful, but it wasn't dread. It was just kind of like, oh God, all right, let me just see, keep my head above water here. But I guess maybe it was all of those moments of PTSD sort of, mm -hmm. like that I had every shift sort of added, added up. And over the years, that dread got worse and worse and worse. And I eventually changed jobs to something that I think fit me better. And I actually, I never felt dread then with that job, but let's say this one beforehand, where it was the second busiest hospital in the state. I I know it's going to be a crush. I'm feeling dread. And actually, it's funny, as I say it, I can feel it. <laughs> I can feel the emotion coming up. Okay, let's bring you back from yeah. that. How do I work? How do I work with this? Probably a lot of your listeners can relate to this. So if I was coaching you, Rob, first I would bring empathy, you know, to that experience, especially when you say over 12 years, almost every single shift. I mean, that's just brutal. So I would want you to hear validated and concerned and supported. But the next thing I would do is I would ask you, so Rob, when you're in that state of dread, if there's a narrative or a story that you're telling yourself, what is it? Let me think about that because all I ever did was think about the dread. Right. Um, I would say it's going to be busier than I can handle, which it often was. And I would just get behind every shift. <laughs> so what I'd say is, and what skills did you bring to bear to manage your recent shifts, even with all that busyness? Um, to mitigate that, I would try thin slicing a bunch of patients I ended up putting off all of my documentation to the end of the shift so that I could keep up with the volume. But then I was staying four hours over, which would was a whole other thing. Um, I think that the thing that I brought to bear on it was trying to be as clinically astute and smart and capable as possible. And I definitely brought that, although maybe that was to my detriment because then I just got like very involved in each case. I'm trying to think about what did I bring to bear what I'm really hearing is that, yeah, the job was incredibly demanding and in a predictable way. You weren't making this up. Right. Predictable way. Yes. <laughs> and you managed all those shifts. Maybe some ways you could have done things differently, but yet you did manage them. So that narrative, because the other part of that narrative is um, not just that it's going to be busy, but that I'm going to be crushed. I'm not going to be able to manage it. This is the shift where I'm going to fold. That's part of that narrative that I could hear between the lines, this really catastrophic thinking. And so I'd want to help you walk back to the reality that as difficult and demanding as your shifts were, you actually got through them. And you did get out at the other end. The mind creates all these narratives, and they have so much power over us. Dread is about a narrative. This is going to be bad. I know it. Maybe it is going to be bad, but maybe it isn't. Or maybe it's going to be somewhere in between. Maybe it isn't going to be either or. And 
you've managed these shifts for a lot of years in your career, and you're going to manage this one too. So that's the way I would help you work with it. It's not an instant fix or an instant cure-all, but it is getting to know that narrative. This is going to be bad because it's powerful, and it really, I think, fuels that cycle of dread and fear. Okay. Well, I'll tell you that right there could be eight podcasts, right? <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> deconstructing it. But I, but I want to get your, I want to get your thoughts on imposter syndrome. We've got this crossroads of perfectionism, the gold standard that our actions and our outcomes must always be the gold standard, and at the same time, the pervasive sense of not fully knowing what to do, and that crossroads of imposter syndrome of feeling that, you know, I'm a bit, I'm not, maybe I'm not all that uh, people from the outside see me, that crossroads of imposter syndrome and perfectionism like makes this cyclone of internal distress. Most of us are walking around feeling like an imposter. Sure, there's a few narcissists out there. We all know them for our med school classes, but most of us are not. And the impact of IS, the imposter syndrome, and how it contributes to burnout is really intense. So what I think about with the imposter syndrome is something that I call the cycle of perceived inadequacy. What do I mean by that? Well, we are hyper-focused on what we perceive we're not doing well. I didn't give a good presentation. I'm not very articulate. You know, I didn't shine in that moment. We are equally hyper-focused on what we perceive others are doing well. Great presentation, so articulate, top of their game. And we spend a lot of time, as we've discussed, comparing ourselves. So we kind of create this delta, (laughs) this uh, gulf between where we perceive we are and where we perceive somebody else is. And that fuels the imposter syndrome. And we go round and round in this incredibly subjective way gathering this data, what we perceive we didn't do well and what we perceive they did. And for every person we're comparing ourselves to, you've got to know that they have their own cycle of perceived inadequacy that they're walking around with. So the good news is that the imposter syndrome is simply a thought process. It's actually not particularly reality-based, and it is most certainly not an objective process. It's just a thought process. And once you get that, you can really kind of laugh at it. Like, what is going on here? What am I devoting so much energy to with this calling myself an imposter? And just to go back to what you said about perfectionism, it is such a problem. And we learn it in our training. If we're not perfect, we're a failure. Perfection is an unattainable standard. It leaves us so dissatisfied with ourselves, with the notes that we write, with how our houses look, with our families. Everything about it is very destructive, and we don't have to live as a perfectionist. We really don't. Again, it's one of those things that we can work on. We can develop that agency to kind of say, oh, there I go, really pushing myself to be perfectionist. Do I really need to do that? This is critically important for physicians struggling with documentation which is a lot of physicians, right? Struggling with documentation. They've had everybody come. They've had the epic person shadow them. They've gotten smart sets. They've gotten templates, and they're still behind on their documentation. One of the core things that's holding physicians back is perfectionism. How is this note going to sound to somebody? Am I really conveying the whole story? Are my sentences perfect? 
Often physicians were English or sociology majors or religious studies majors, and they never wrote an imperfect sentence in their life. And then they got to write these ridiculously short notes that just, you know, meet the, the E&M codes that make some billing person happy. And also to protect yourself from a med mal suit later. Exactly. Protecting our body parts. But we can work with perfectionism, like mindfulness awareness. We can see our own, you know, our own foibles. We can see there, I'm going into perfectionism. Is it going to serve me? Is this a good place for me to exercise my perfectionism? Or would it really help me much more to just put it aside? So that's how we can use mindfulness in a very practical way to work with our own patterns of mind so that they can be more resourceful for us. Okay. You're sitting down to do your charting and you know, it's like, oh God, all right, I'm going to procrastinate. I'm going to feel whatever I feel. I don't want to do this. I kind of dread this. Oh, here comes dread again. How do you shift your mindset to be like, look, part of the deal, let's just get it done. Well, there's a couple of things. That stop protocol that I mentioned earlier, this would be a good time to use it just to kind of reduce the emotional temperature. So that's the first thing. The second thing is an affirmation that I've created that I'd like to share with you and your listeners. And it may sound silly. You're sitting there, all the charts, it's miserable. As you said, it's the Achilles heel of every physician. We're wondering how we're measuring up, perfectionism, the whole stew of it. And we can say to ourselves, I am good. I do my best. I cannot control all the rest. Plain and simple. May sound like a little grade school ditty. I am good. I do my best. I cannot control all the rest. If that can be helpful to any of your listeners, I want to encourage them to try it out because they are good. They do their best. And there's a lot that they can't control that kind of gets into all that swim that you're talking about that then makes it very difficult to move forward and get the charts done. Well, Gail, this has been amazing, and I hope that we can do this again in the future and dive into these issues, because I know we actually had listener questions for you. We didn't even have time to get to those. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. This has been a total pleasure. That is it for today. Thanks so much for coming. For complete and detailed show notes on this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, see some videos, have good old time. You can subscribe to Stimulus, pretty much any podcatcher that's out there, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a rating. I read all of the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.